From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem, you know what really grinds my gears? We give banks cash and we get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital. I agree, Jill. I find it hard to feel excited when I'm earning less than 1% of interest on my cash. Well, Celsius Network, our sponsor, is on a mission to change that. With their super easy to use mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest gets paid out every single week and there are no fees, no penalties ever. And if you, dear listeners, head over to Celsius and tell them that you were sent by Meltem and Jill, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use the code GEARS, G-E-A-R-S, when signing up, or go to celsius.network slash gears. The year is 1054, and Christianity is the dominant religion throughout Europe. Its centers lie at Rome, where Pope Leo IX presides over the church, and at Constantinople, the heart of the Byzantine Empire. And for decades leading up to this year, these two hearts of the church had been beating to slightly different rhythms. And as the years have worn on, these rhythms have become more and more out of sync. There was the dispute about the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was the dispute about language. Should we be speaking Latin or Greek? There is the dispute about using unleavened bread as the Eucharist. And now, finally, in 1054, there's the dispute about jurisdiction, about whether the Pope over in Rome can actually tell Constantinople what to do. The answer, it turned out, was no. And the church split along geographical, linguistic, political, and theological lines. The biggest institution in the Western world at that point cracked in half. This was the Great Schism. Now, what's good to note is this was not the first time a religion had fragmented, and it was far from the last time. Think of all of the different sects of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, or whatever your faith of choice is. When it comes to religion, people often vote with their feet. If you disagree with a teaching, a custom, or a belief, then family or societal pressures aside, you can leave and join a different faith. Or you can even start your own. Look (laughs) at that. But when it comes to money, um, it's really no different either, especially not in crypto, which, as we've seen with some of the recent narratives, really does resemble religion in many ways. But in crypto, because we like to have new words for all the things, and since this is open source software, we don't call it a schism. We call it a fork. Fork. 
fork. Jill, what's your favorite piece of cutlery? Is it actually a fork? <laughs> I'm more of a chopsticks girl myself. What? <laughs> that is a shocker. I myself am a spoon person. I'm a big fan of the spoon. Oh, well, we can get into spoons as well in this episode. The Cosmo fork, card spoon. spoon, for example. <laughs> fork, spoon, spork, knife. Let's before talk we get about too, it. Before we get too advanced here, let's let's back it up and let's define what is a fork. Hey, Jill, can I tell you a knock-knock joke? Yeah, take it away. All right. Knock-knock. Who's there? Fork. Fork who? Fork you! <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Malcolm. It's my it's my only cutlery joke. <laughs> All right. So what is what is a fork? What, is, what are we talking about when we talk about forks, Malcolm? Uh, cutlery, delicious, awesome cutlery that you use to make steaks into mouth size pieces. We got forks. We got knives. We got spoons. No, okay. We're talking about when you fork a software project. And when you fork a software project, a little bit like the piece of cutlery, you're creating a new branch. So you take a copy of the source code and you start independent development on it, right? Now, yep. often this results not just in a new development branch, but also in a new development community around the software. So a bit of a schism, if you will. I want to just say here, though, um, so historically, the way people have collaborated on open source software development has not been so contentious. Typically, if people are working on upgrades or ideas um, they want merged back into the core protocol, typically what they'll do is they'll work on a branch of the software, so this fork, and then um, there will be one maintainer of the code repository, just like Vladimir Vanderlaan is the maintainer of the Bitcoin core code repository. That person will then review... Um, uh, code proposals people send in and then merge these forks back into the main code. So this for like for software development people, I'm sure they look the way we use forks as language in the crypto community and just shake their heads because we ruin everything. <laughs> but <laughs> in traditional software development, um, forking and then remerging that code back in is pretty common. Yeah. And this is one of the beauties of open source software in general, is that it can be forked and developed on without permission. This happens all the time. It's not just a cryptocurrency thing. Yeah. But in the world of cryptocurrency, forks, as with everything else, they tend to be particularly dramatic, <laughs> right? Uh, so <laughs> much drama. So why is this? I have a couple of theories. I'm sure you have some of your own, but I have many. I, have I think many. it comes down to two reasons why they tend to be especially dramatic. The first is that with cryptocurrency, money is quite literally at stake in a way that it's not in most other so open source software projects. And the yep. second, I think as with religion, there's a lot ideologically at stake as well. A lot of people get into crypto because of the ideo ideology around it. Right. Whether that's it's like religion. Or, yeah, it's exactly. like religion, right? It's social, philosophical, um, value, principle-driven ideals um, that are expressed as 
money and code. It's pretty fascinating. It's what makes this so fun and so disturbing. (laughs) And when we talk about forks, what we're really talking about is the roadmap of the software, in what directions it'll be upgraded, in what directions Mm -hmm. it'll be changed. And so this inevitably raises questions of vision. What is the true purpose of this software? Is it digital gold or digital cash? Is it more important to maintain integrity and reliability? Or is it better to be innovative and fast moving? and breaking things. And so this inevitably raises questions of governance. You know, who gets to decide what the purpose of this software is? Who gets to decide whether a fork is the right move in a given situation? Yep. It's complicated. It's really complicated. And we are going to delve into some historical examples, but um, forks are inherently political acts. That's right. So let's dive into forks in a little bit more depth. Because forks come in many shapes, sizes, colors, <laughs> creations. That's right. Um, you have the shitty little plastic forks. Have you ever tried to eat a steak with a plastic fork and knife? <laughs> Not good, especially if you like your steak well done, which I do. Uh, you're, this is. I remember now, Jill, why I despise eating some meals with you because you like your meat well cooked. Which is like, why would you eat a steak? Just eat hamburger at that point. No, I want I want the filet mignon with the peppercorn sauce cooked. But well you done. get it well done. Yeah, but it doesn't like I'm saying, it doesn't work so well when I've got a plastic fork to eat it with. That is savage. Jill, that's so <laughs> savage. I don't know if we can be friends anymore. I'm a rare type of girl. Why would you get filet if it doesn't bleed on your plate? That makes no sense. I know what I like. I know okay, what I like. fine. You know what? I'm going to let you and Donald Trump have well-done sticks. I'm going to let you <laughs> oh, have that. <laughs> oh, God. I walked right into that one. Speaking of governance. Okay, anyways, forks. Let's go back. Topic, focus, focus, squirrel brain. Okay, so um, following Bitcoin... Right, Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency in its true sense. We had digital currencies before in the advent of the internet. We've talked about the cypherpunks in prior episodes. But Bitcoin was truly the first code base. And since the advent of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies have really come into existence in only one of two ways. One, people write new code. Or two, people take an existing code base and either copy it, fork it, or leverage it in some other way. And as Joel mentioned, all this stuff is open source, so there's really nothing that can stop anyone from simply copying a bunch of code, putting it in a new repository, and running it as a new project, right? That's right. And uh, And one thing I'll jump in with here is, you know, VCs, Meltem, you used to be one. You can say this probably with more authority than I can. (laughs) VCs love to talk about this idea of moat or defensibility. And with open source software, that becomes a really interesting question, right? Because there's no sort of proprietary technology going on here that can serve as that moat. There's no patents in most cases anyway. Uh, There's nothing... This goes back to balance sheets, Jill, right? Typically, one of the big line items on the asset side of the balance sheet for a technology company is IP. Exactly. That's where defensibility and value comes from. That's why people have multi-billion dollar acquisitions. If you built a great piece of software and I wanted it and I didn't want to pay um, to license it from you, I could acquire you. But the only way for me to get that software because it's proprietary and you own it would be for me to buy you. And that's where these crazy valuation multiples 
tools come in. And so the big question for a lot of crypto projects is, okay, if this code's open source, if that IP line on the balance sheet is effectively a zero or a negligible number, what is there? Yeah, exactly. And so all of this is happening out in the open with cryptocurrency. And so all you have is your network, your followers, if you will, if if we're going to go back to the <laughs> well, religion example, let, right? And well, so that's well, that this is one of the dynamics that makes forking really interesting. But I want to go back as well here to what me, what are the different forks. types of forks and why do they happen? So Exactly. So as Jill said, um let's just quickly define terminology. The most successful cryptocurrencies have forked. Some of them, like Bitcoin, have forked multiple times. We'll delve into all of that. But terms are really important. So as Jill said, the fork idea um, is all about the validity of rules. Forks are typically conducted in normal software development in order to add new features to a blockchain. And in some cases, they've been added to reverse the effects of hacking or catastrophic bugs. The important thing about forks is that they require consensus to be resolved or else the chain splits permanently. Forks are typically related to the fact that parties have to agree to common rules to maintain the history of the blockchain. Consensus, after all, is about reaching agreement. And when people are not in agreement, this is when we see chains split. Um, So let's talk about three different types of forks that I think are important here. The first is not actually a fork, but we'll call it one. It's a source code fork. And this is what happens when you take a code base, you copy it, you make a few tweaks and you implement the code base as new. Technically, it's not really a fork because it doesn't share any commonalities with the original chain. Um, It's a completely separate chain right from the start. The Genesis block is fresh, it's new. So it's not technically a fork, but it is a way of giving birth to a new protocol by just copying an existing code base. And we'll delve into this example, but Litecoin here is the clear example where, you know, the Bitcoin code base was copied. I believe three to four lines of code were changed and it became Litecoin. Lo and behold, a coin was born. Look at that. It's like uh, the immaculate conception (laughs) to go back. There's so many The religion examples are never going to end here. I know it's going to be a bad episode. Um, I apologize in advance for everyone I offend. Great. So we've got the copy paste forks. Let's discuss now the hard forks. These tend to be the most contentious of the bunch. So I think there, before that, there's two types of forks. There's intended forks, so forks that are planned, um, which fall into hard fork or soft fork. And then there are also unintended forks, forks that happen accidentally. So Jill, why don't you talk about hard and soft forks? And I'll talk about the unintended forks because they're fun. Great. So a hard fork versus a soft fork. It's not about how you cut your steak, believe it or not. Your well done rubbery steak. You're not cutting it with a plastic fork. So a hard fork is a fork that is neither forwards nor backwards compatible. So this means a change to the rules, a change to the protocol that nodes have to proactively upgrade in order to accept. Now, with a soft fork, this type of change to the protocol rules is backwards compatible. And so nodes do not need to opt into it in the same way. So hard fork splitting Bitcoin, aka split coins, they're again created via changes of the blockchain rules and sharing a transaction history with Bitcoin up to a certain date and time. 
They're, again, not forwards or backwards compatible. That's the really important part here because that's the differentiation between a hard and soft fork. Yeah. And I think the other thing to say is there are actually um, hard forks that have happened in the history of Bitcoin, but the forked chain um, was the chain that moved forward and the old chain was not maintained. No one was mining it. So it kind of died. And so they didn't have an impact on Bitcoin's growth. Um, Whereas in Ethereum, when there was a hard fork uh, following the DAO hack, you know, the old original Ethereum fork was maintained. It became Ethereum Classic. Um, I can talk a little bit about what that experience was like having Mm -hmm. lived through it. It was a really fascinating um, and really interesting time uh, being in the belly of the ETC beast, if you will. Um, But the important thing about hard forks is after the hard fork, there are two separate chains and people have to choose what chain they want to maintain and upgrade to and miners have to choose what chain they're going to support. And in some cases, it's actually more profitable to mine both because one of the cool things when you split a chain is you get assets on both chains. So at the time of the fork, if you owned coins or you owned assets on one chain, you would also own them on the new chain. And it's a great way to split a community, right? Um, And so we'll we'll delve more into that. But I think it's important to note that with hard forks, you have two separate uh, forks that are created, chains, pardon, that are created. That's oh right. God. And, and again, miners who wish to be part of the new fork, they must install upgrades while those that still value the legacy chain will just keep their nodes as they were. And again, with a soft fork, on the other hand, nodes without an upgrade continue to mine new blocks. The upgraded ones will just fail to recognize them. So that's yep. hard versus soft. The quick So let's overview. talk about unintended forks, um, because forks sometimes do happen accidentally. So there's this thing that happens if two or more miners find a block at nearly the same time, um, what happens is um, uh, an unintended fork, right? Um, they they mine the block and subsequent blocks are added. Um, and this creates separate chains. And typically what will happen in these situations, the fork gets resolved because subsequent blocks that get added to one of the chains, this chain then becomes longer than the others, and the networks uh, abandons the blocks that are not in the longest chain. These things are called orphan blocks, and it moves to the chain. Um, it continues with the chain that has the longest history of work, or the longest. This is why proof of work um, works is because you go to the chain that has the longest proof of work. But there have been instances in the past where networks have had unintended forks, um, and these are pretty interesting because in some cases they can be resolved. Um, in some cases they can't. But I think the best way to talk about forks, Jill, is to talk first about some of the most prolific fork examples in some of these different categories, and then uh, to talk about what happens when you actually fork a chain in terms of governance, in terms of finances, um, but also, most importantly, in terms of growth and development. Um, And we can talk a little bit about why people have pursued forks in the past and why forks are not looking like such an attractive strategy circa 2019. Let's dive in. Forks. Forks. Okay. So people tend to think that the OG fork was the Bitcoin Cash fork or maybe the ETC fork. Nah, baby. But we would contend... The, the OG fork, the first spawn of a cryptocurrency, again, not really a fork, not technically speaking, but Litecoin. Uh, what do we have to say coin. about Litecoin? Okay. So Litecoin is kind of genius, I think. So um, 
I have long held that many new coins were created as a rebellion against the perceived tyranny of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's like super hardcore. It's hard to change. It's very contentious, which we'll get into. So um, Charlie Lee, who was an engineer, I don't know if he was working at Coinbase yet at this time. I think he was still at Google when he did this. Yeah. He basically took the Bitcoin source code, copied it, pasted it into a new repo. <laughs> it's basically identical to Bitcoin and created a new thing called Litecoin. Um, so basically the idea was if Bitcoin's digital gold, Litecoin's digital silver, which is why literally the Litecoin logo is a silver coin with an L instead of Bitcoin's like orangey gold logo with a B. Um, the Litecoin network went live October 2011. No pre-sale, no pre-pre-sale, no private nope. ICO, no... Nada, nils, no advisors. Yeah, this Nada. was the OG. Just, yeah, just taking some code, copy, paste in. Um, the big difference was the block generation time, instead of being 10 minutes, was two and a half minutes. There were way more coins, and it had a slightly different hashing algorithm. Um, it didn't have SHA-256. It had script, and it had a slightly modified GUI. Um, and what's crazy about Litecoin is Litecoin today is one of the top cryptocurrencies, like, that's insane. That's just, right. Uh, and, you know, you say that, okay, those were the big differences between Litecoin and Bitcoin. But actually, the biggest difference, I think, comes down to the community schism, right? Yeah. And that that's not to say that these two communities were suddenly mutually exclusive. Like, there was obviously a lot of overlap. The crypto community, especially back then, was still very small. But the community around Litecoin was much more embracing of innovation and much less dogmatic about, no, we have to stick to, you know, the exact script that, that Satoshi yep. set out for us. I think the other big thing is um, Litecoin ended up in 2017 being the first cryptocurrency to adopt SegWit or Segregated Witness, which um, was an upgrade to the Bitcoin protocol. And then um, a couple weeks later, it became the first as a result to implement the Lightning Network, which was also um, intended for the Bitcoin network. But because Litecoin was so similar to Bitcoin's code base, it actually ended up becoming a testnet for Bitcoin. Exactly. Um, which has been really interesting. But again, as Jill pointed out, right, the Litecoin community, you know, Charlie Lee, who developed it, um, or Big Chicken, or is he a little chicken or big chicken? I don't remember. Little, little chicken? Little chicken. Okay. <laughs> we'll find out at Magical chicken, Crypto Friends. Spelled, spelled C-H-I-K-U-N, chicken. Yeah. Like yeah. the good, like where you're like chicken, chicken. I don't know how you pronounce it. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> Digress. So this, this though, to clarify, this was not a fork in the true sense, right? Was this was not a job. split of the chain. It was it's a, a copy paste. paste. Yes. And by the way, like the copy paste has been used extensively since then. I think the interesting thing is, so who are the holders of Litecoin, right? Because in this copy paste job, unlike other forks, um, people didn't automatically get coins on this chain. So what's interesting is the Litecoin community as a result ends up being really different than the Bitcoin community, um, which is pretty cool. But let's talk about case study two. So we talked about Litecoin, copy paste, not really a fork, but it's like a source code fork, if you will. Um, let's talk about my favorite fork, ETC. Classic. <laughs> like, oh. How are your bags? How heavy are they feeling today? I don't want to talk about it. Let's let's not okay. Let's talk about ETC. So can I can I just tell the story, Jill? Because I I live Please this. take it okay. away. All right. 
So uh, we all remember what happened. Ethereum, everyone got really excited about the DAO, this idea of a decentralized investment firm that was going to be run on top of the Ethereum network using smart contracts um, and people who would like play these different roles and allocate the capital. And so fully 10% of the Ether supply was put in this highly experimental DAO. And then someone (laughs) hacked it and stole all of the ether. And so you have this situation where 10% of an entire cryptocurrency network is owned by a hacker. Now, this hacker was the whole history of the fork, um, the Ethereum sort of hack fork, everything's really fascinating because it was a white hat hacker, right? This hacker basically came out and wrote this statement. They posted it on Pastebin. They were like, hey, um, I haven't done anything illegal. I just use the smart contract. In a way, it wasn't intended, but was permitted by the smart contract. I'm not technically stealing. I'm just using the code. And um, what they did is they uh, drained the ether out of the DAO. And so everyone in the Ethereum community is like watching this happen. They're like, oh my God, what do we do? And so the Ethereum community held a coin vote, um, which we've talked about before. And like no one knew how to participate. No one really participated, but they had this coin vote and they decided to fork the chain. And I think by the time they forked it, um, Actually, 15% of all Ethan circulation was in this DAO, right? So they were like, hold on, we're going to take the chain and we're going to roll it back. But there were a bunch of people who were like, wait a minute, there is already an Ethereum chain. Like, why? Who gets to decide that you can roll this back? Who may? Who is making Isn't that, that decision? Isn't that the whole point of cryptocurrency? Like, it's supposed to be immutable, right? So, so that was the whole point of Ethereum Classic. So the hard fork was scheduled to happen on a Saturday late night, right? So it happened... Um, And I woke up that Sunday morning at 4 a.m. to my phone ringing. And someone was calling me. I won't name them, but they know who they are. Someone was calling me and they said, hey, you need to get on Poloniex right now. They just listed this thing called Ethereum Classic, which is the original Ether chain. People are going to keep mining it. We're making a new currency. And I was like, all right. (laughs) So... um, that was the genesis of Ethereum Classic. Like Poloniex jumped right in, listed the asset. But that was the original chain. And all of these people who had Ether on the original chain rolled it back. They now were on this new chain. It was a fork. But what's crazy about the Ethereum Classic chain, so if you owned Ether at the time, at the time of the chain split, you would hold both Ether and Ethereum Classic. And what was fascinating about it is the idea was if the chain at t equals zero has a value of, say, x, the thesis is that at t equals one, when the chain splits, the value of both chains summed together of y plus c would be x, the value of the one chain at the original point in time. But that's not what happened. The two chains actually started to become worth more. Um, And so I think this was the first real example of an ideological schism. The whole rallying cry around Ethereum Classic or ETC became immutability. Um, Now, arguably, they were not that effective at splitting the community. There were only few entities that really supported Ethereum Classic, including my former firm, Digital Currency Group, um, which went so far as to create an investment product oriented around ETC and to try to bootstrap a um, community development function. And IOHK, which was Charles Hoskinson's firm, pardon, is Charles Hoskinson's firm. Um, so ETC, I think, successfully forked the code, sorry, maintained the original Ethereum code, but it did not become the chain that was most widely accepted by the community. 
Now, I have a question around this, actually, because I don't know this part of the story. How was it decided that it would be called Ethereum Classic? Well, all of the original... So this is where the branding thing gets kind of strange, right? Yeah. All of the original Ethereum people, so um, Vlad, Vitalik, um, Joe Lubin, everyone at Consensus... They all went with the new chain. Yeah. And so so they were just the ones who sort of made the call, we're going to continue to be Ethereum and everyone else just acquiesced. The whole whole brand was Ethereum, right? So whatever they were doing was going to be Ethereum. Because they were the brand. They were the brand. They were the community, right? At that point in time, like this is 2016 and 2017, Mm -hmm. like everything that was happening in the Ethereum community was happening, you know. God, that feels like so long ago. It was just a couple years ago. Girl. I remember sitting in a car, right? I remember sitting in a car trying to trade on Polo. By the way, this is also close to when the Bitfinex hack happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had like ET- leveraged ETC <laughs> positions on Bitfinex. And I was like, how do I liquidate? It was it was a time. It was a moment in time. Um, but what was so interesting about it, so the name Classic was like, hey, this is the original, right? It's like Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola Classic. Yeah. You that? Like yeah. Coke Classic is the one that has real cane sugar. That's Mexican then- Coke. No, but there's a thing called Coca-Cola Classic. Okay. It has the retro can. Oh, I recall this actually. Right? It's My like mom the went retro can. Yeah. yeah, everyone yeah. loves Coke Classic. And then there's Normal Coke, which is like the corn syrup bullshit one with the modern logo and like aerial font that looks the same as every other <laughs> logo. But there's Classic Coke, which is supposed to remind you of like your childhood and wholesomeness. And I think Ethereum <laughs> Classic is kind of the same. But from a community perspective, like just an abysmal failure. But the thing, the reason ETC is still a top 20 asset, and this is what really matters here, is every person who held Ethereum now also held Ethereum Classic, right? That's right. And so basically by forking the chain and maintaining the original fork and the new fork, effectively what the people maintaining the old fork basically were able to do is to acquire, you know, however many wallet holders there were in Ethereum, they now all became ETC holders. Which you would think would be a great way to bootstrap it. I mean, it's it's a very similar idea to all of the airdrops that we saw happen in 2017, 2018. But just because people have it in their hands doesn't mean that they want to use it. Right. Well, and this was a big controversy with Coinbase, actually, because Coinbase um, had Ethereum as an asset people held. And um, Coinbase for a long time said, we're not going to give out people's ETC, right? And so the price of ETC like rallied, 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 went all the way up to $40. The thesis a lot of people had was that Coinbase had sold the ETC at like a dollar. It then (laughs) ran to 40 and they were like, oh boy. (laughs) And so they waited till it went back down to like, I don't know, $5. And then they were like, oh, guess what? We are going to give you your ETC. But the thing is, this case study with Ethereum um, shaped what would happen next, which is the Bitcoin forks of 2017 and 2018. That's right. And a lot of those questions that I was just asking have actually grown out of what happened with the Bitcoin forks. So the primary one being, of course, Bitcoin Cash. Can I? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm like um, Bitcoin grandma here. I'm crypto it's grandma. story time today. Take it away, Meltem. <sighs> okay. The New York Agreement was so Bitcoin. NYA. Had to be, oh, oh, 
I just look back on some things and I just it fills me with tell the story Nelton tell the story okay so um 2016 you know Bitcoin from the start was filled with a lot of different visions different ideas and obviously um Bitcoin has always had a lot of personalities um in fact the reason the whole reason Vitalik um Buterin ended up um you know, creating this thing called Ethereum. Um, he was a writer for Bitcoin Magazine, and um, he had been, you know, trying to contribute to Bitcoin, but he just saw so many issues with Bitcoin that instead of trying to work on the Bitcoin source code, he was like, "I'm just going to create new code, and I'm going to call it something different." That's how Ethereum was born. But a lot of people who were um, part of the Bitcoin community as Bitcoin started rising in price, they started becoming more affluent, they started becoming louder, they started becoming more extreme, they started believing their own hype. Right? Like, what happens when people believe they are? gods of the universe people get weird and so people had like i'm just being candid that was my sense of the whole things like all of these people who had gotten into bitcoin early whether through luck or through some form of foresight uh probably a combination of the two honestly felt like they were um entitled to speak for bitcoin and so there was kind of like bitcoin has always had this void of leadership because gavin andreessen took a big step back from the project in 2015. Um, he was like, I don't want to deal with this. This shit is crazy. Like, I don't know how Satoshi did it. He took over the code repository from Satoshi. Um, he maintained the code base. And then he was like, oh, no, I don't know. This, this shit is crazy. And took a step back. And at that point, this big void in leadership appeared. Um, and so people started arguing about the future of Bitcoin. Um, and one of the big debates was about whether Bitcoin was supposed to be digital gold or store value, or whether Bitcoin was supposed to be um, a form of payment, digital cash, right? And a lot of the debate was about the block size of Bitcoin. Um, and it also had to do with, uh, so the block size had an impact on how many transactions you process per block. And then um, there was also a lot of discussion about like the miners wanting certain things. And it was just, it got very messy. So to but, clarify uh, just the block size for a second, mm -hmm. the block size matters to this debate over whether it's store of value or whether it is a means of payment because the block size was serving as basically a bottleneck to the transactions that could go efficiently through the Bitcoin network. Right. That that was the main narrative there. That was the um, argument. Exactly. Yeah. And so basically this debate having going on for a while was getting increasingly crazy. People were like sending each other death threats. It was it was really crazy. I mean, I remember sitting in meetings where people were like, I won't talk to that person because he's a big blocker. I was like, okay, well, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to run this business. Can we just do the work? Again, very dramatic. Both money and ideology are at stake. Absolutely. And so the culmination of all of this was a group of people um, spearheaded by my former employer, Digital Currency Group, um, got together and they were like, what if we have a compromise where we implement SegWit, which is what the small blockers wanted because it would enable lightning and solve an issue with a Bitcoin opcode. And we do two megabyte blocks, which would double the block size. And so we had this meeting at a hotel in New York. Um, I ended up being the person who was like trying to manage the conversation and being like, okay, now you talk, now you talk. I'm going to write this down. Here's what we said. Do people agree to this? Um, it was a, it was a weird time. It's a weird experience. But basically the New York agreement was an attempt to reach a compromise between the two sides. And then a bunch of people looked at that and were like, wait a minute, this is an attempted um, coup of Bitcoin. And then 
no user activated soft fork emerges. There were like all of these different movements. It got really crazy and really intense. And then in November, um, basically a group of people split off in that included Roger Ver, Jihan Wu, um, and a bunch of other people. And they said, you know what? Screw all of this. Screw talking about it. Screw trying to reach a compromise. We're just going to do our own thing. We're going to fork the chain. And our chain is called Bitcoin Cash because it's Bitcoin for payments. It's not it's, store value Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin for payments. It's a little bit like, you know, everyone has that person or those people in their friend group who, as everyone else is standing around saying, oh, well, where do you go? Where do you want to go out tonight? Where do you want to go to dinner? What do you want to do? They're just like, well, this is my plan. I'm going over here. You guys can come if you want. That's effectively what happened. And that's effectively how most forks actually tend to go down. Well, and I think the other big thing is we're talking about people who had a lot of money and resources to throw behind this fork. Um, And the thing for them is, look, if they fork the chain, here's what's great about it. If you own 10% of the Bitcoin network, right? between you and your buddies who are planning this fork, not only are you going to continue to own 10% of the Bitcoin network in perpetuity, you're also going to own 10% of the Bitcoin Cash network. And by the way, if you mine all of the blocks in this network, you're going to own a proportionally increasing share of the network. So it's a way to basically gain more ownership of a network through a takeover or through this schism. Because There's your ownership a lot of weird incentives going on. In it. It's exactly. nutty. Um, so yeah, that's, and look, Bitcoin Cash is still one of the top five crypto assets. Yep. Do you still hold your Bitcoin Cash from the chain split, Joel? I don't. I do not. See, Sold I- Sold out of that. I do. So here's my thing. Um, at the time of the fork, a lot of people were like, should I sell? Should I keep this? And by the way, Bitcoin Cash wasn't the only one. There's Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Private, Bitcoin Diamond, a bunch of others. I held all of my Bitcoin on all the chains because I wanted to retain my proportional share of the network on each fork. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. like, obviously, I most identify with the Bitcoin core version of Bitcoin, but there were no guarantees, right? Yeah. There still aren't. What if Bitcoin Cash became the dominant Bitcoin network? There still aren't any guarantees. But so we're going to dive into all of this a bit more. But first, I want to introduce another framework and lens through which we can think about this before we dissect all of the issues of these three <laughs> case studies and all of the other case studies that there Sorry, are. I just, there. Jill, I just, I lived this so vividly in both cases that it just, I get, I get emotional. It was insane. I sometimes <laughs> have to, someday I will write a book about, um, the inside story of cryptocurrency. I feel like a lot of journalists look at crypto from the outside in, it's very you were different. in the room, baby. I was in the belly of the beast. Jill, theories, frameworks. You're speaking in my language. Lay it on me, girl. All right, theory time. So we've talked a bit already about how forks can be thought of as schisms, forks as fragmentation. But there's another theory out there, another line of thinking that forks are not actually about fragmentation, but they're about evolution. That's right. Evolve. (laughs) So let's think about this. Let's take it back this time to 1831 when a young man was recommended for a round-the-world voyage by his college professor. Do you ever notice, Jill, how all good stories start with unexpected voyages? (laughs) (laughs) Aside, continue. (laughs) 
I don't, I don't know how the ETC story started with an unexpected voyage, but we'll roll with it. Oh, yeah. So this young man, he had aspirations of becoming a natural historian. He was eager to join up on this voyage. His father, however, was staunchly against it. Thought it was a waste of time and money. But As dads are wont to do, by yeah, the way. This seriously. is typical dad behavior. <laughs> Now, fortunately for history, that dad did not get his way this time, and Charles Darwin went on the trip, which lasted almost five years. He went from places ranging to the Galapagos to Mauritius, and Darwin made observations and collected fossils and species samples all along the way. He, What he saw on this voyage and what became very clear to him after he got home to Cambridge was that the species samples that he had collected Many of them were related and that they were transforming and transmuting amongst themselves. And perhaps, he thought, perhaps these species spawned from a single origin, the origin <gasps> of species. That is, that is blasphemy, Jill. I know, yeah. That we're, we're back to religion again. We're back to the church. You're <laughs> blaspheming. And so Darwin thought perhaps the various traits of these species were competing against each other for resources, and over time, those that couldn't keep up were dying off. The survival of the fittest. Well, survival of the fittest is nothing new. Um, there was actually a great Twitter handle um, called the Darwin Awards. <laughs> I highly, <laughs> I highly Go recommend on. it. Go on. It, will, it basically is... Um, videos of people doing things that indicate that perhaps they are not the fittest and thus not likely to survive. It's basically people doing real dumb stuff. Um, A little bit like Jerry of the day, right? Yes. But basically, um, crypto also has this type of behavior, right? And so I think what you're suggesting is that in cryptocurrency, like all other things, um, perhaps it is survival of the fittest and maybe forking chains is a way to enable ideas, projects, communities to evolve. That's right. And so, you know, there are a lot of examples out there of blog posts, of thought leaders talking about this theory of how cryptocurrencies evolve through the forking process. We'll link a whole bunch of them in the show notes. I encourage you to read them and see for yourself what you think. But to this whole theory that crypto is the survival of the fittest, to this I say, maybe. Maybe. Because right now we are in the Cambrian explosion phase. Okay. (laughs) Cambrian explosion is one of those phrases that really grinds my gears, Jill. All right. So let's make sure for your sake we're okay. using it correctly. So okay. for that, I'm going to turn to Wikipedia and let's let's define this. All right. Fine. So, okay. According to Wikipedia, which means that it must be true, the Cambrian explosion or Cambrian radiation was an event approximately 541 million years ago in the Cambrian period when most major animal phyla appeared in the fossil record. This lasted about 20 to 25 million years and resulted in the divergence of most modern metazoan phyla. The event was accompanied by major diversification of other organisms. Now, later on, of course, many of these organisms died off we've ended up with the certain subset of species that we have on earth today because they are the fittest and thus survived. But I think the way in which, so Cambrian explosion is one of these phrases that as we like to do in the crypto community, we adopted and turned into our own special phrase, right? Um, But to me, it feels pretty fitting for 2017. (sighs) This explosion of tokens that just expelled 
from a few very simple pre-existing coins, just like all of these animal phyla did from a few very simple pre-existing animal species. No? Sure. I mean, the Cambrian explosion in crypto, um, it results It's overused. It's an overused Sure. I mean, people who want to sound intellectual, like they to talk about the Cambrian explosion. My favorite is um, the charts people do where they show, you know, one celled organism evolving into many celled organism. Then you have apes and then you have um, Homo uh, erectus and you have like. Is that the- like Bitcoin spawning Litecoin spawning? Uh- <laughs> no, it's like some pseudo intellectual garbage talk um, where people just want to sound Milton, intelligent. Haven't you read Sapiens? <laughs> I just I'm, I'm really kidding. Trying. I pretend to have read Sapiens. I only made I it read it and report. I found it unsurprising. And everyone's like, that book changed my life. And I'm like, have you never have you literally never read a book in your life before? Okay. And so point anyways, being with but, the Cambrian explosion though. People tend to talk about the Cambrian explosion as something of a positive event. I don't view it that way. No, actually. That, I view the exactly positive of evolution. Point. The positive of evolution comes when things start to die off actually. Exactly. And the whole thing about the Cambrian explosion is that, yes, there was a major diversion, diver- diversification in all of these species and phyla and families and genuses ended up in different places, but most of them died off. And cryptocurrencies do not die off easily. They all become of these- zombies. Yes. And these forks are effectively zombie coins. And the problem with a fork is because everyone who owned this asset prior to the fork now also holds your shitcoin, you cannot kill a fork very easily because these tokens end up in wallets that people own. They end up having distribution. So how do you kill a coin that has massive distribution? How? That's right. So let's hope. Here's hoping it doesn't take 20 to 25 million years for this mess to get cleaned up because the explosion of forks and tokens has big implications on the market. It creates inefficiencies, it impedes liquidity, and it creates mass confusion. But here's the thing. in We're not going to be around for more than 100 years because by that point, Bitcoin will have consumed all of the energy, mass, light, everything in the universe. So nothing will continue to exist other than Bitcoin. That's the whole point. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so let's, let's let's dive into the inefficiencies of forks. Let's connect it to liquidity, which we talked about last week. Let's connect it to governance, which we've talked about in the past. And let's just start to peel apart why some of this confusion exists. So why are we talking about forks? Why does any of this stuff matter? Well, let's go back to liquidity, inefficiency. Liquidity liquidity. I'm talking liquid. (laughs) I love being able to quote Gordon Gecko on a weekly basis. It's great. (laughs) So um, one type of market inefficiency, and I know you're going to talk about price inefficiency, Jill, and does one plus one equal five, which is one of the ideas behind forks. Um, One of the other ideas here that comes into play when you fork a network and when you fork attention is you fragment the market. Um, so basically what happens when you fork a token, coin, cryptocurrency, you're not fighting for the same things that an animal or species would be fighting for. You're not fighting for territory. You're not fighting food. You're fighting for water. What you are fighting for is you're fighting for speculators, users, developers, attention, but above all 
else, the holy grail at this stage of the crypto market we're at, liquidity. Fighting for liquidity. And so here's why that matters, right? So let's say, for example, when you fork the Bitcoin network and you create Bitcoin cash, you sold your Bitcoin cash, right? You looked at it and you were like, nah. mm. if everyone sells their Bitcoin cash en masse, no one's going to care about Bitcoin cash and you will have failed at forking the community. So what you need to do in order to create a successful fork, pardon, is to ensure that there are plenty of venues where people can buy and sell it and to ensure that you have buyers. So this is where stabilizing bids come into place. And this is where exactly the Ethereum Classic and Bitcoin Cash story gets interesting. When these forks happened, when these assets hit the market, because most of the holders um, who held the original chain also held the fork chain, who's going to be a natural buyer of this asset? We have to create an artificial market to ensure that the price is stabilized as people start to sell or exit the asset because they don't believe in its viability. They don't believe in the vision. They don't believe in its governance, right? That's right. And so these stabilizing bids are going to be placed by people who have a lot to gain from faking liquidity for these assets. Perhaps it's a little bit like what we talked about last week when an exchange does wash trading to make exactly. it look like there's more activity going on. Only in this case, it's not the exchange doing this, of course. It's the stakeholders. And they're not just trying to fake volume. They're also trying to fake the price. Well, by faking volume, they're effectively moving the price. So if you fork a chain, the best thing you could actually do is think about all of the different ways that you can manipulate data to make it look like this new chain has a lot of activity or find a way to manipulate the narrative so that people who didn't buy the original asset, so say, for example, Bitcoin, right? When the Bitcoin chain forked, Bitcoin was worth, what, about $8,000? So the narrative was, well, Bitcoin's really expensive. Bitcoin cash is not as expensive, and it's just as good as, if not better, than Bitcoin. So why would you buy Bitcoin at $8,000 when you could buy Bitcoin cash, the better version of Bitcoin, at $2,000, right? So. The whole game here for new forks, new chains, everything, listen on exchanges, get people to put in stabilizing bids, particularly those who have a lot to gain from this new chain, and figure out a way to artificially manipulate the metrics so it looks like the market for this new asset is much bigger than it is. Or you find new bag holders to rope in, maybe, for example, by going out and selling a bunch of institutions on the idea that the fork is better than the original. I don't know. Not too crazy if you think about it. Or just pumping it to the greater fool. Well, but this is, again, I think one of the ideas people have, well, oh, by forking a chain, um, it doesn't matter because cryptocurrencies are liquid to begin with, right? And I'll go back to um, this Twitter argument I had with someone as one does. We're dramatic. Um, If you don't like a network, the idea that you can exit or succeed the network and then continue to maintain liquidity is kind of crazy, right? That's that. That's just not what liquidity means. That's not what liquidity is about. Liquidity is not about the ability to vote with your feet. Liquidity, as we defined in our episode last week, episode 14, go listen to it if you're still confused about this. Liquidity is the ability to buy and sell an asset without impacting the price. It's how much exactly. of that asset you can get in and out of without moving the price against you. And this is where actually Ethereum and Ethereum Classic are great 
examples. Um, if you look at the daily turnover in Ethereum, meaning the volume traded over 24 hour period versus the market cap in Ethereum Classic, um, what you'll see is you know the ETC chain trades a teeny tiny amount and the Ethereum chain trades in far greater volume because there is actual market depth for one and not so much for the other. You can see these even as a factor of how many venues Ethereum is listed on and how deep the markets are for this asset. So that's the liquidity narrative. Um, Jill, why don't you talk a bit about the inefficiencies and the one plus one equals five narrative? Because I think this is a fun one. <laughs> yeah, this is a fun one. So there are a lot of topics that we could cover on inefficiencies and forking. But the one that I really want to talk about, the one that really grinds my gears, is that forks tend to not be rationally priced in. So <laughs> we all work in cryptocurrency or finance, probably for the most part, if you're listening to this podcast. Therefore, this means we all must believe in efficient market hypothesis and rational actor theory, right? Ooh, but Jill, humans are predictably irrational. Isn't that the takeaway from the last, I don't know, 100 years of economic history? Indeed. And it turns <laughs> out that lo and behold, this holds true when it comes to cryptocurrency forks as well. So, I want to go back first for a second to the dot-com bubble in 2001. Um, and there was this great paper written called Can the Market Add and Subtract by Richard Thaler uh, mm -hmm. and another guy named Owen Lamont, two behavioral economists who worked on irrationality and psychology in the markets. Yeah. And what they looked at was how stocks were priced throughout the dot-com bubble and throughout their IPO cycles, um, especially as mergers and acquisitions were happening and also stock splits and whether these things were priced in. And so the example of Palm and 3Com is probably the most well-known of this. So I'm going to run through that really quickly just as a counterpoint to what ends up happening in Forks. So Meltem, do you remember Palm Pilots? Um, I remember, yes, because my dad had one. And when we were on family vacations, I would play solitaire on his Palm Pilot. Oh, I would do the exact same thing, actually. That's so funny. <laughs> um, oh, so, yeah. Palm to be a pilot. child of the 80s and early 90s. <laughs> seriously. Seriously. So, Palm Pilots, the company Palm was owned by another company called 3Com. And in 2000, 3Com sold its stake in Palm to the public in an IPO. This is called a carve-out. Now, the way that this should have gone down, it should have been very efficient. Again, efficient market hypothesis, right? right? So everyone who held shares of 3Com was supposed to receive 1.5 shares of Palm, so the inequality that should have held true is that the price of 3Com should have been greater than the price of Palm times 1.5. But this is not at all how it went down. Because the day before the Palm IPO, 3Com closed at about 104. After the first day of trading, Palm closed at 95, implying that the price of 3Com should have jumped to at least 145, but instead 3Com fell to 81. I'm going to keep all of these numbers in the show notes for those of you who like to do the math and follow along at home. But let's just say uh, this did arithmetic. not make... Say that again? <laughs> we love arithmetic. We do. Math is true, say, though, Jill. <laughs> this did not make any rational economic sense. The numbers did not add up add up, which is weird because everyone knew that this 
carve out this spinoff was coming. Everyone knew the numbers going into it. And yet the market couldn't add and subtract. So wait, Jill, how much money was vaporized overnight in this carve out? I think it was, what was it? Like $20 billion? So $20 billion was vaporized overnight because of a simple change in ownership structure. That's right. And this, the inverse of this, I would argue, effectively <laughs> happened with the Bitcoin cash hard fork. So yep. just before the fork actually occurred, the price of Bitcoin, we would think, should have roughly re- reflected the price of the two resulting assets of Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash because everyone knew that the fork was coming. So you would expect, you know, Bitcoin pre-fork to be equal to Bitcoin post-fork plus Bitcoin cash. Again, I can put all of these equations in a blog post. Right. Now, there might be some explanations for why the price might deviate. There might be some discount to reflect the risks of the impending fork, blah, blah, blah. But you would expect that equality to roughly hold true. But when the day of the fork came along, Bitcoin barely moved. And yet, Bitcoin Cash closed the day with a market cap of over $6 billion. Wrap your head around for that. $6 billion in value emerged from one moment to the next out of thin air. But Jill, to be fair, if we go back to the liquidity conversation, that $6 billion was calculated based on data from exchanges. Price, after all, is a factor of perceived liquidity. And so um, again, that $6 billion can be a manufactured number. In fact, um, Masari, the company behind on-chain FX, full disclosure, I'm an investor, has done a lot of work around the real market cap of crypto assets, most notably Ripple. Um, you know, They've kind of looked at this market cap number and where it comes from. But if you can manipulate perceived liquidity, if you can per- manipulate perceived supply and demand in a market, you can manipulate price. And I think a lot of what happened with Bitcoin Cash, a lot of the demand and supposed volume came from smaller exchanges in, you know, Asia primarily. Um, And so, you know, if you tried to sell, you know, I remember Bitcoin Cash being listed, you know, the ticker at one point hit $4,000, but you couldn't actually sell in any size at $4,000. I remember trying to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we all, baby girl, we all did. Like a few hit the people, bid. <laughs> a few people did hit the bid. Just like a few people hit the ten cent ether bid during the great GDAX flash crash. Um, but but look, here's the thing, right? This actually um, happens all the time in public markets, right? X plus Y should equal Z. Right. But sometimes it doesn't. And so this is where the phrase comes from. One of the things I love talking about, you know, I'm an M&A gal. um, And so I always love talking about, yeah, we're going to make one plus one equal five. And a great example of this, actually, that I just want to bring up quickly. It's not a fork, but I think it's an interesting one. Um, If we take the legacy world example, when Amazon bought Whole Foods, they spent $13 billion to acquire Whole Foods. Their stock price went up way above $13 billion, right? The market cap went up over $13 billion. They almost um, went like tripled the value of that acquisition just in market cap gains alone. That's an accretive acquisition though. But the difference is, Meltem, is that that would at least be somewhat priced into the share price as as that M&A deal or as that IPO or whatever it is comes closer and closer. This was like, it just appeared from one moment to the next. But that's a function. But again, this is where the extricable link 
between perceived liquidity and perceived market data and how we account for these things becomes really important because that 6 billion is a data point that was derived from a blended price average across exchanges. I hear you. I mean, I I think that this I is I think that this is just a larger market structure issue for cryptocurrency. So one whole. plus one does not equal two. Sometimes one plus one equals zero, 1.5 or zero. Um, you know, and actually, I think the other case we've seen is you know just like Amazon acquired Whole Foods when Tron acquired BitTorrent, right? They did a second token sale, which effectively they forked another open source protocol in the form of a company like they did a fork on a fork on a fork it blew my mind it was Forks so all ins- the way down girl all right so let's talk about all of this confusion though because because the clearly the day- there's a lot of confusion happening here okay but here is my issue right the issue of branding here's my biggest beef with the design and user experience on every platform in this space if i have never looked at cryptocurrencies before right? And it's the middle of 2018. And I go on to Coinbase or Circle or any of these platforms. I don't want to call out any specific one. And I, I log in for the first time. I create an account and I see Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and I see Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Now, Bitcoin is $15,000. Bitcoin Cash is $500. Ethereum is $1,000. Ethereum Classic is $20. What you going Which, to buy? What are you going to buy? What are you going to buy? One. The cheap one. That's what I'm right. going to buy. I'm going to look right. at that and be like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash. And, you know, in fact, I've done user studies with people where I'll ask them to to use cryptocurrency. I'll challenge them to use cryptocurrency. I'll challenge them <laughs> to receive it. And yeah. they'll say to me, like, what, you know, which maybe maybe I should take the Bitcoin Cash. Maybe I should, It's not, you know, if I'm trying to buy things with this, Bitcoin Cash right. sounds like the right one. There's a lot of confusion out there just around the and, branding. That's just the keep, branding side. Right. But here's the thing that I worry about, right, is if you go out there and <laughs> you're not providing clear information to people about the difference between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash or Ether and Ethereum Pardon and Ethereum Classic, ETH or ETC, like that is actually um, a type of confusion that I think in some cases is exploited. And I, I think it's it just totally hurt. irresponsible. It's it just fundamentally like it very much grinds my gears <laughs> because it's reckless and in a way that is not cool, like the lightning type of reckless. <laughs> We're basically taking people who know nothing about cryptocurrency and their first experience coming onto these platforms is buying assets that are fundamentally, like in many ways, so different from and valued so different from the main chain. And even if the code base isn't that different, you know, they need to understand that the developer community, the liquidity profile of the assets, all of these other factors that have split in these schisms are totally different. And what they're probably looking for is actually probably not the cheaper asset. But here's the thing, Jill, like if I were to create a company, right, that spun out of Google, I wouldn't call it Google Plus, right? I wouldn't have G-O-O-G as a ticker and then have G-O-O-G C. 
That's insane. There's a reason that patents and copyrights exist. And this goes into the branding side, right? Yeah. So a great example here is Bitcoin.com. Bitcoin.com. <laughs> Everyone stop what you're doing and just go to Bitcoin.com right now and um, see if you don't get confused. Because I actually, I know this about Bitcoin.com. And even as I was prepping for this episode, I went to this, the, the site and yeah. I started to get confused about what I was looking at. I mean, all you really need to do is look at the logos, right? The logo for Bitcoin is an orange circle with like a kind of slanted B in it. The logo for Bitcoin Cash is that exact same logo, except the B is slanted to the left instead of the right. What? It's a very subtle difference. Then we look at Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. The only difference between the two logos is the Ethereum logo is black and gray, and the Ethereum Classic logo is green. What? And so, so here's the thing about Bitcoin.com: is you go to Bitcoin.com, and there actually is no Bitcoin logo to be seen. It just says. You can buy Bitcoin, BCH or BTC, buy Bitcoin, fast processing, blah, blah, blah. But then you start to notice, oh, wait, all of these news articles seem to be about BCH, 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 Bitcoin Cash, scrolling down. Oh, in August of 2017, Bitcoin forked into two versions, Bitcoin Core, BTC, and Bitcoin Cash, BCH. You know what's funny, Jill? They actually link to not local Bitcoins, but local BCH. What? I didn't even know local BCH was a thing. Yeah, local Bitcoin Cash. Build on Bitcoin Cash, tip with Bitcoin Cash. This so it's so done very subtly, but if you go to Bitcoin.com, it's about Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, and so only- for anyone they- who's <laughs> looking for information about Bitcoin, they'll go to Bitcoin.com and wind up being roped into this Bitcoin Cash thing in all likelihood. And uh, not not have the resources perhaps to but figure out what the difference what's actually crazy is. is even the way they display the tickers they put the price sticker bch first 291 bitcoin 49.98 right so bitcoin is 20 times more expensive basically than bitcoin cash what so so there's just a lot bitcoin, of wait hold like on and there's a psa button that says bitcoin cash is bitcoin Wow. What? Anyways, look, we don't need to get into semantics. There's a lot of intentional misleading going on out there, it feels and like. This is, and this is exactly the problem I have. Um, Jill, do you want to talk about your mom for a minute? Because the story actually blows my mind. I love your mom. I love both of your parents and your brother. <laughs> but this story, I think, is just really um, symptomatic of what we've been talking about. I remember it was, it must have been Christmas, not this past year, but the year prior. So my mom has a Coinbase account. I actually gave my mom a Bitcoin for Christmas. This was back in 2013. Damn. Um, Do you want to be a part of my family? (laughs) (laughs) I gave my mom a Bitcoin for Christmas. This was the running joke of my family every Christmas from 2013 through 2017 every like every year everyone would be like oh jill how's mom's bitcoin doing is it in the money like no of course it wasn't in the money um until 2017 came along and lo and behold you know my mom was was feeling pretty rich off of that gift i'd given her just trying to figure out how to log back into her coinbase account which she hadn't done in a while but so my mom looks at her coinbase account and she's like wait what what is this thing that i've got suddenly I've got this Bitcoin cash stuff going on here too. 
I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I proceed to try to explain to my mom what's going on with the Bitcoin cash. My mom is a smart woman, okay? My mom was was an options quant on Wall Street back in the 80s. She's a smart lady. But she was like, I don't know what's going on here with this Bitcoin cash thing. And at the end of a few hours of me trying to explain to her, she's just like, I love this. She goes, I don't really get it. I think I just want to sell it and buy some some more of this this regular Bitcoin with it. And I was like, <laughs> yes, mom. she gets it. She gets yes. it. <laughs> so the worst part for me was um, when the Bitcoin cash fork happened, right? There are a bunch of questions around. So number one, we talked about the issue of if you hold Bitcoin on an exchange or Ether on an exchange, are they going to give you your Bitcoin cash or your Ethereum Classic? In fact, at the time, one of the big topics of conversation at Grayscale, the asset manager, you know, where we had had um, Bitcoin investment products and Ethereum investment products was, well, what do you do post fork? Do you give people the forks? Do you create a new um, product with the fork? Do you cash it out and then give people a cash dividend? Like what, what do you do? So they create a bunch of questions. Also taxes, right? This was a big debate in 2018. Like people who held Bitcoin, what do you do with this Bitcoin cash fork? I did not ask to get these tokens. So how do you tax the fork? Is it your cow having a baby? Is it a dividend? Is it something different altogether? So I think again with forks, um, there is no clear cut answer. I have certainly come to appreciate the complexity of forks as an asset manager. Um, There is no regulatory precedent really for a fork. It's not a stock split. It's not a dividend. Um, It is something different altogether. And the fact this code is open source and anyone can create a fork, for example, if I hold Bitcoin, I have no interest in holding maybe Bitcoin gold, right? I actually don't even really know what Bitcoin gold is, but I'm going to get Bitcoin gold whether I want it or not, right? Exactly. And that means if you sell it, you're going to have the tax liability on it, whether you want it or not. But not even if I sell it, what is my cost of receiving it, right? If I get my Bitcoin gold deposited into my exchange account or I um, have to split my coins, right? Another big issue, if you have your coins in a self-custodial wallet, you have to split your coins. What? So I ended up dealing, like I spent most of 2018 trying to teach family offices and institutional investors what a fork was, how to deal with coins post fork. I taught people how to use a ledger. Um, When Zappo, there was a day in Zappo, it was like November of 2017 when Zappo was like, hey, if you don't take your Bitcoin cash out of Zappo at this point, we're just going to cash you out and just put cash in your wallet. Um, And so a bunch of people came to me and they were like, how do I do Bitcoin cash? And so I had to teach them how to use a ledger. Luckily, I have a bunch of extra ledgers. I like to keep them at home in case I need them. Um, But I ended up like being a ledger dealer, if you will, and helping people figure out how to move coins securely out of Zappo and into self-custodial solution because there was no custodial solution to hold this stuff. So look, like, Forks are this really interesting, um, really fascinating area of crypto that we could continue to examine from all these angles, but they're rife with problems like ideological problems, um, problems in how you represent them, problems in markets, problems in liquidity, problems around regulation tax, but just how is anyone ever going to use a Bitcoin if every nine months we have to explain to someone what a fork is and what this other Bitcoin is. It just doesn't make sense. 
And I think one of the things that we're starting to realize in the crypto community is, in fact, when you create a fork, what you do is you fork growth as well. Right. And so what I think a lot of people are now starting to realize is if instead of spending, you know, two, three years arguing Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash or Ether versus Ethereum Classic, if we would have just focused on one thing, we would have been much further along and the market cap would be much greater. So in fact, what we found is similar to the situation you described with the spin out where one plus one does not equal two, but one plus one equals 1.5 and value evaporated. I think people in the crypto community are really starting to reconsider forks because net net they have had a really really destructive impact on the overall value of crypto brands not just from a market perspective but all that confusion we talked about um, the lack of liquidity the splintering of market venues the movement of users from one platform to another um, we have found that forks have not had the effect they intend to. And the governance doesn't get any better with a fork. You're trading one type of tyrant for another. Tyrant, that's a great word for it. Because what I want to close on here is about governance. Because largely <laughs> what forks come down to is actually a matter of governance. It's this question that we started with of who gets to decide? Is it the Pope? Can the Pope tell Constantinople what to do? Is it the developers? Is it the miners? <laughs> is it the users? I mean, this you saw this firsthand, Meltem, I know, with the New York Agreement. A lot of people were saying, oh, you know, the tyrants of the New York Agreement, all of these folks who run these big businesses and have all of this right. to in from the big blocks, et cetera, they're trying to tell us what to do. And that's how we lead to these big schisms. Well, and all of these things, Jill, as I've always said, new protocols were like almost a visceral reaction to the perceived tyranny of Bitcoin. And from there, ETC was a reaction to the perceived tyranny or the impurity of the Ethereum community. These things, these forks, even though they're technical in nature, and the word fork implies a technical schism, they're about visions, they're about value, they're about who gets to decide. And it's as a Turk, <laughs> as a Turk, Constantinople, they said hell no to the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so this, you know, where I want to wrap up with this is that there's a lot of different directions that you can take the problems that arise with forks. You can try and take the problems that arise with forks and just manage them, or you can try and take these problems and actually largely eliminate them. And that's what a lot of the projects that deal with governance do. It's it's very easy to hand wave away the word governance, but it's actually a very important and very specific problem within cryptocurrency and projects like Decred, like Tezos, uh, yeah. like some of the other governance but are you trading one type of tyranny for another, Jill? That is my main thesis. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> tyranny, democracy. But this episode is not about governance. It's about forks. It's about evolution. It's about schisms. Governance for another day. Indeed. Did you want to end with a quote? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll have to rewind this a little bit. We'll just make sure. a note to read. But so, this Tezos, episode is not about governance. 
This episode is not about governance. We'll leave governance for another day. But to end with a quote here, our friend Arthur Brightman has said that hard forks should not be a daily occurrence. They should be the equivalent of revolutions. They should be reserved for when there is actual tyranny happening in the system. <laughs> um, and Very French of him, the French Revolution, of course. Well, but uh, revolutions are not bloodless. And uh, there are winners, there are losers. And again, if we go back to our friend Polybius, who we've discussed in episodes past, and his cycle of governance, perhaps we are simply trading one type of tyranny for another. We will find out with time, won't we? Indeed. Tune in next week for more. Hey, this is Jill and Milton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and, of course, memes. Milton, you know what really grinds my gears? We give banks cash, and we get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital. I agree, Jill. I find it hard to feel excited when I'm earning less than 1% of interest on my cash. Well, Celsius Network, our sponsor, is on a mission to change that. With their super easy to use mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest gets paid out every single week And there are no fees, no penalties ever. And if you, dear listeners, head over to Celsius and tell them that you were sent by Meltem and Jill, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use the code GEARS, G-E-A-R-S, when signing up or go to celsius.network slash gears. Did you miss that? Use the code GEARS, as in earning nothing really grinds my gears when signing up or go to celsius.network slash gears to get your $10 in Bitcoin. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.